Hello and welcome to another Archimedes podcast, the evidence-based case section of the Archives of Diseases of Childhood. As you know, Archimedes is about collecting clinical questions from clinicians, them going away, searching the evidence, appraising it, and then bringing it back with a clinical context that says how this evidence should be used to answer clinical questions and perhaps change clinical practice. This month, we've got two Archimedes questions which fly in the face of commonly accepted wisdom and bring evidence-based medicine to challenge the activities of many people's everyday lives. And we also have a clinical appraisal note, a sort of bit of an explanation about how to do clinical appraisal or aspects of clinical appraisal, this time looking at before and after studies. The first clinical problem has been sent in by Lyndon Bradley and James Huntley, who work in orthopaedic surgery in Glasgow in Scotland. They offer the case of a five-year-old girl with lower limb spasticity who's been having botulinum injections. And on the fourth one of these, her mum asks, do these Botox injections actually have a chance of improving her outcomes in the long term? Now, being good, intelligent clinicians, they converted this question into a PICO question, which is the patients in children with lower limb cerebral palsy, the intervention, intramuscular Botox, the comparison, not using this, using best supportive cares, and the outcome, clinically relevant improvements in function in the long term, which they defined as greater than one year. They went away and performed an extensive electronic search, getting down to 58 randomised controlled trials that were addressing the use of botulinum toxin in spasticity. They then went through these by title, abstract and sometimes even full text to take out those that related to lower limb spasticity and then went through the reference lists and citations of these articles to make sure that they hadn't missed any. They got down to five randomised controlled trials and these trials ranged from 91 patients in the largest down to just 15 patients in the smallest and they addressed a number of issues but covered similar sorts of approaches. So they all used Botox injections, some of them used them over a period of six months, some over two years or more, and they assessed a variety of different outcomes, such as the measured range of movement at the ankles or hip migration indices to see whether the hips were still in place or not, or becoming displaced on radiological criteria, and then other outcomes, such as the need to go for surgery, or an overall outcome, such as a clinically satisfactory hip position. The thing that's striking about these trials, even though they're undertaken in slightly different ways with slightly different measurements, is just how similar the measurements are when they come back to look at the difference between the Botox group and the placebo group. For instance, the largest trial, that of 91 patients, looked at hip migration indices and showed that there was no significant difference between the two of them. A trial that looked in 46 patients to see the amount of surgery that was done in the two groups showed no difference between the two. And a trial of 64 patients showed a maximum of 0.7 degrees difference in the range of movement on ankles when the assessors were fully blinded. 
This trial also showed there was no difference in the surgery rates between the two groups. It's really a bit disturbing, I think, for me as a as a person that doesn't do Botox injections or really know much about the area in detail. But I was certainly under the impression that Botox was a very useful intervention that, although it didn't cure spasticity, it, it gave the opportunity for physiotherapists to lengthen muscles, to get good stretching in and to reduce the amount of surgery that was needed over the longer term. But these authors raise concerns that it doesn't appear to do that in the long term and there may even be wider toxicities leading to muscle fatigue and weakness. But those are less certain. What looks pretty clear from this is that there is very little evidence for long-term benefit for Botox injections in lower limb spastic cerebral palsy. The next clinical question comes from Chandra Sakrayan and Fleming at the Homerton Hospital in London, in England, and concerns premature infants. This time, an ex-26-weeker who, at four weeks of age, is on nasal CPAP, doing all right, and uh, on some ranitidine um, because of presumed gastroesophageal reflux. And the question is raised that, is ranitidine necessary and, and is ranitidine safe in preterm babies as there was a vague recollection that someone had said something about necrotizing enterocolitis. Now again following a well-trodden path the research team turned to electronic databases and searched widely on three different databases to try to find something to indicate what the safety of ranitidine might be in the preterm infant population. They've initially found over 350 articles that they cut down by title and abstract to seven full text articles and then went to three of those that were relevant to the question under study. Two of these were case control studies, that is where you take the case that has the outcome of interest in, in this instance, necrotizing enterocolitis, and you compare those with controls where you've matched the controls usually for major elements that you think might also explain necrotizing enterocolitis. So in this case, you might think about the birth weight or the gestational age or the feeding type. But what you don't do is match them on the exposure of interest, that is the thing that you think might be causing the problem, so you don't match them for ranitidine. Then what you do is you take these infants and you look back to see have they been exposed to ranitidine in this instance and look at the rates of ranitidine exposure in the two groups. The difference between them gives an indication of an association between ranitidine and necrotizing enterocolitis. The two case control studies that were undertaken, one of them had 787 NEC cases and 2,361 controls. That produced an odds ratio of around about 1.7. That is a 1.7 fold increase in the odds of NEC if you'd been given ranitidine. And the other case control study uh, had 116 babies with NEC and 116 a one-to-one -one matching um, without NEC and showed an odds ratio of 3.7 for the development of NEC. Now, both of these excluded patients who had their ranitidine started in the day of or the day prior to the diagnosis of NEC, trying to get around the issue of ranitidine being started because the baby was unsettled and actually this was an early phase of NEC. 
The third study was a cohort study where they took a bunch of preterm infants and followed them forwards in time. 91 of them had been exposed to ranitidine and 183 hadn't. Looking at this, the odds ratio for NAC was 6.6, so over six times more likely to develop NEC if they had been exposed to ranitidine. Now, none of these are randomised controlled trials. Nobody took the babies and randomised them to get ranitidine or placebo and used chance to mop up or even out any of the other confounding factors that might cause NEC. But they've done a pretty good job with the data that they have at their disposal to try to even things out and say, what's the residual risk, even after we've taken into account all these other things? And those are pretty powerful numbers. Those are a, a large increase in chances of NEC by, by giving um, the babies the H2 blocker. Alongside this, I suppose you have to weigh up, but what are the benefits of giving H2 blockers to preterm neonates to, to relieve the problems of gastroesophageal reflux? And looking at the literature, what they've done in a less thorough way, because that's not their direct clinical question, as they failed to find anyone that's really demonstrated that ranitidine has a great benefit in preterm infants. So we're left with a situation where ranitidine, commonly used, commonly thought to be safe, commonly thought to be beneficial, doesn't really have any great evidence behind any of those statements. In fact, it looks like it might be harmful without any great risk, and you should be very cautious using it in preterm neonates without an extremely good reason. The critical appraisal topic this month looks at before and after studies. Now, before and after studies, as you'll know, occur fairly commonly in the literature. What tends to happen is that you do something, you change stuff, um, then you monitor and you see that something's changed over time. Except mostly before and after studies are not done quite like this that they're rarely conducted purely prospectively. Usually, something happens. Something is going on. So there might be rising infection rates, Kawasaki's being diagnosed frequently, there are increasing numbers of do-not-attends at your clinic, and, and it's noted that something must be done. And so people have a think, and then something is done. And whatever it was that was worrying before falls back down again. Everybody thinks, ah, that's wonderful, that's great. Uh, uh, let, let's go through the notes and see just how bad it was before. And, and now we know how good it is after. Now, can you see any flaws with that? Well, the first one is that things fluctuate randomly. And particularly with rare things, you get blips and then things settle down. That, that whole idea of regression to the mean. And, and then there's another thing, and that's that there's a... An idea that before we did one thing and after we did another thing. Things rarely do change like that in one clean movement. There's often a period of sort of fluff and, 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 and waffling as things shift from one idea to another. And then in addition to that, there's the idea that when you start doing something, focusing on improving one thing, all sorts of other things happen too. I mean, take the idea of, of bare below the elbows. There's little direct evidence that the moving of cloth off the forearm actually makes a difference to infections. 
But what it probably does is make a signal for something. It indicates that you want to wash your hands lots. It encourages others to do so. It makes you think about infections and isolate patients that might be infected quickly. And so whilst the thing is the rolling up of sleeves and the the bareness below the elbows, it's probably the fact that that indicates many, many things rather than just the thing in and of itself. And on top of all that, there's publication bias. For instance, looking at before and after studies, if you did a something and it didn't work, then how likely is it that you're going to put in the effort to write it up and try to get it published? For instance, if you have a a, a patient with, a, with, with, with vasointestinal peptide-induced diarrhoea and you commence octreotide therapy and, and, and the diarrhoea settles miraculously, you would probably write it up. But if you come on st- uh, racicontradil and nothing happened, then no one's going to be trying to submit that as an abstract to the next spring meeting. Now, this is a very sceptical approach to before and after studies, but there may be some things that you can hold on to. If you see really, really big changes, things with a greater than five-fold change, they're unlikely to be just a product of chance and bias although they might be and the estimate itself might be exaggerated but it's likely that something really has happened there are those where there really are befores and afters for example a drug is completely taken off the market and the outcome that you're looking at has been consistently measured regardless of whether that drug was present or not and then another version would be to look not just at, at clumped numbers, but to look at the smoothed trends in the two periods measured in a, a similar way, where the period of change has been removed from the analysis, sort of avoiding the blip if it was there and, and taking it out. That's a little bit more convincing than another. So you might have thought when you started thinking about before and after studies that 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 it was a really good thing to do Uh, but what do you think now after well that's the end of the podcast for another month i will look forward to hearing from all of you uh, about archimedes about the podcast about anything to do with our journal really please feel free to tweet us at adc uh, underscore bmj or email the office and we'll get hold of the emails and get back to you Thank you for listening and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.